Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of scripture. Um, oh, wow. And okay. I hold to the inerrancy of scripture. Okay. The title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Hello and welcome back to the Do Theology podcast. It's Jeremy here again with you as we continue our series of Critiquing Covenant Theology, now entering part three. The first two parts, we looked at everything from hermeneutics to the role of the law of Moses in the Christian's life today. Uh, So many interesting things covered the covenants and talked about limited atonement and the distinction between Israel and the church, all those things. And now we come to the eschatology portion of the critique and looking at where there are differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism. So often when people talk about dispensationalism or even just think of dispensationalism, what they know of it, their mind goes to end times. Their mind goes to Kirk Cameron, to uh, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind stuff, uh, Nicolas Cage, the new Left Behind movie. <laughs> and yeah, you just start thinking about charts and diagrams of end time stuff. Now, although that is very important, even though that is a big part of the identity of dispensationalism, because there is this focus on eschatology within dispensationalism that you don't really get in other uh, systematic theologies. Um, it's not all that there is. So I hope that the first two episodes proved that. And as you go through those uh, first two episodes full of critiques and pointing out the contrast between covenant theology and dispensationalism, I trust that you've seen that there's more to it than just Kirk Cameron and uh, the rapture. All right. So there, there's a lot more to it. Uh, but like I said, it is uh, an aspect of the whole thing. And I would say that the dispensational view of the end times is a key part of what makes dispensationalism dispensationalism. Because what's interesting is up until the time that uh, dispensationalism was formalized with an, with an articulation that didn't really exist before, though definitely these views existed before, but, but before the time it was formalized, there weren't too many prominent theologians that emphasized eschatology. And this is just kind of the way things go through church history, is that there are periods where certain things are focused on. So you go back to the early church, and they're wrestling with how to define, based on Scripture, in modern words, how to define the Godhead. 
And so they're wrestling with that. And, and you see uh, the Council of Nicaea or the Athanasian Creed or whatever, the, these different things that, that rise up from them wrestling with how to articulate, based on Scripture, who, what, what, what the Trinity is, who the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in light of the fact that there's one God. Uh, you see the church wrestling at certain periods, the church wrestling with uh, the nature of Christ and how to define specifically the nature of Christ, because you'll have teachers that come up who disagree with what some other teachers say, and they'll call councils, they'll look to the Word of God, they'll articulate from the Word of God what God has said. Uh, of course, in the Reformation, if we could really fast forward in church history, you have a, a real focus on salvation issues, soteriological issues, you could say, where Martin Luther and, uh, well, before him, you've got Wycliffe and Huss, but Luther and others who are saying, okay, Roman Catholic Church has gotten way off base. We need to reform this thing and talk about grace. What does it mean that salvation is by grace through faith alone? Real big emphasis on that and the role that Christ plays in salvation as our priest, our great high priest, salvation in Christ alone. Well, later on, you have more of an emphasis on eschatology, something that hadn't really happened in church history. And the dispensational view of end times was really advanced by uh, a guy named John Nelson Darby, though he was certainly not the first. You can look into his writings and his work. You can look into some really good books that have been written uh, that talk about dispensational views of eschatology and other stuff before John Darby. You can read Dispensationalism Before Darby or uh, Forged from Reformation or uh, a number of good books, uh, Discovering Dispensationalism, a number of great books that walk you through the history of these things. But with Darby and others who followed, there became this uh, articulation of this system, and End Times is a big part of that. And so uh, I, I wanted to throw that out there because the book of Revelation up until really recently was kind of neglected. Uh, even though Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says, you'll be blessed if you read that book. If you, if you hear the words written in that prophecy, you will be blessed. Uh, it wasn't really treated like that was the case. Uh, Martin Luther, for example, didn't really care much for Revelation. John Calvin left it out of his New Testament commentary. You could find John Calvin's commentary on so many things. Didn't really like commenting on Revelation. Didn't really want to mess with it. Zwingli was another one, uh, really the father of modern covenant theology. Ulrich Zwingli, he didn't like the book of Revelation either. And so it really hasn't been until recent centuries that you have some Christians who are now Protestant Christians who have come out of the Reformation who have said, yeah, we should uh, really get into the book of Revelation and see how this all fits together. And dispensationalism has been a very big part of that. It, it, and it's funny because sometimes people will talk about dispensationalism like it's the new kid on the block, so you know don't pay attention to it or whatever. But uh, everything has kind of gone in this order as God has ordained it for his church, where we have these seasons where we're focusing on certain things, and it really hasn't been until lately that the church as a whole has embraced eschatology. And so... I want to say all that up front before we get into it. I also want to say that today's episode is once again sponsored by the Do Theology Store. 
Support this podcast by going to our store, checking out the merch. Why don't you buy something over there? That'd be cool. It's nice stuff. I own one of our hoodies, the Do Theology hoodie. Really nice. We got a tumbler. It's really nice. And we got some cheap stickers and stuff. You could support us that way. Or better yet, because there is no kind of like overhead cost, support us by buying a coffee. Link down in the description. Buy us a coffee. Sign up to send three, five, ten bucks our way each month as a way of just saying, I appreciate you. And Jeremy, I want you to have a new microphone. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, <clears throat> let's get into it today. Let's talk about the distinctions, uh, the differences when it comes to covenant theology and dispensationalism on the topic of eschatology, end times things. And we'll start here with the Great Tribulation and the way that covenant theology views the Great Tribulation. So this is how I define it. Again, this is, in my words, summarizing a whole bunch of stuff that's out there. Look at this tiny little box. So few words used. Yeah, I'm going to fall short in how I, how I articulate these things, but I trust that it's good enough. Covenant theology approaches the Great Tribulation through one of three main ways. Now, there's a fourth way, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But these are the three main views of the Great Tribulation that you will encounter in covenant theology. This isn't comprehensive because there's a fourth, but these are the three main ones. The first is the preterist view, where they say that the events of the Great Tribulation are squarely in our past. They were carried out and fulfilled in the first century. There are many Reformed people who are going to be preterists with the Great Tribulation in regard to the Great Tribulation. Now, this will make them partial preterists, because a full preterist would say everything happened in the first century. The millennium happened in the first century. How's that for a conflict of terms? Uh, Jesus's second coming totally fully happened in the first century. Those are full preterists, and those people are heretics. I debated one of them once upon a time. You could check that out. But uh, these are partial preterists. They say, look, the, the Great Tribulation stuff, all of that happened uh, in the first century, A.D. 70, the fall of Jerusalem, Romans and all that stuff, uh, killing all the Jews and destroying Jerusalem. Uh, not all the Jews, but you know what I mean. That, that's, that was all Great Tribulation stuff that happened already. We're past it. They are preterists in regard to the Great Tribulation. The second main view that you'll encounter is the historical approach, the historicist view of the Tribulation meaning that the events described in Revelation about the Great Tribulation and in other places, those events correspond to events in history even up to today. And so what they'll say is something like, um, okay, you have the, the woman and the beast and uh, all these different symbols, these different images going on in the book of Revelation, and they play out over the course of many centuries— you could say even multiple millennia now, as there's an, there's an event described with uh, the woman going to the wilderness. Well, that someone will get really specific and say, well, that refers to this event that happened, uh, you know, a thousand years ago when this pope actually turned on, uh, turned against, I should say, believers, and they were forced to scatter, or this time of persecution, or this event that happened in the 1300s or whatever, they're going to go through and see connections throughout history building up to even the present day. And that, of course, leads to the second coming. 
And so the, the tribulation is not a shorter period, but it's actually a dragged out thing. But the uh, events described correspond to specific events throughout history. So, um, you know, you'll see in, in the book of Revelation, we'll talk about this in a moment, where <clears throat> you'll have 42 months and 42 months, three and a half years and three and a half years. You put those together, that's seven years. Um, some people believe in a literal seven-year tribulation. Historicists won't. They're going to say, okay, the time stuff is really just uh, symbolism. But the events that are described that happen within those seven years, those correspond to events throughout the last 2,000 years, okay, where the church has been persecuted or or whatever. And then finally, the third view is the spiritual approach. And I would say this is um, has been the most popular among Reformed people, though the preterist view is really getting more and more popular. But the spiritual view, or you could say the idealist approach uh, to the Great Tribulation, is that literal fulfillment is not important when it comes to the events described for this time of tribulation. Literal fulfillment, one-to-one -one connection, not important. But instead, all of the elements of this great tribulation that are described in Revelation, for example, those events really have application to believers in every age because they are allegorically describing the general tribulation that the church will go through. And so there is no specific uh, hunting down the exegesis of what is described, tying it to a specific event. It's instead recognizing that this is uh, embellished language. This is really dramatic language, apocalyptic language that is all symbolic of the general trials and tribulations that believers face in every age. So those are the three main views that you'll encounter within Reformed theology. The preterist view that says it's in the rearview mirror, the historicist view that says it's been happening and continues to happen up until Jesus' second coming with real events that are fulfilling what has been said, and the spiritual or the idealist view saying there are no specific real events that fulfill specific passages, but instead it's all just describing the general tribulation that goes on and on for God's people. Well, um, the critique comes in the form of presenting this fourth way of approaching the Great Tribulation, which would be the futurist view, which would say, actually, the events of the Great Tribulation are not in the rearview mirror. They're not happening now. Instead, they are in the future. They're out the windshield, you could say. And so here's my articulation of the critique from a dispensational perspective. There's a Great Tribulation that will take place over the face of the earth, displaying God's wrath towards sin as described in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. You can also check out Isaiah 13, Daniel 9, Obadiah 1, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, and several other passages. The church will be spared from this outpouring of God's wrath. See John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, Revelation 3. During the tribulation, Israel will endure God's judgment, and those who remain will be saved. Jeremiah 30, Zechariah 13, Revelation 7. All right. Well, there's a lot of scripture in there, and there's a lot of uh, information in that tiny little box. So first, uh, just looking at the first line there, there's a great tribulation that will take place. Again, this is the futurist view. And there are some Reformed people that would hold to a futurist view and say there's a coming tribulation 
that is in the future. It hasn't happened yet, and it's not happening now. What is described as a great tribulation in the Bible has not yet happened. And so with those people who are uh, covenant theologians who are more Reformed, so far with the dispensationalists, we agree. Yes, total agreement. However, um, I go on to say in this summary, representing the dispensational side here in the middle of the box, that the church will be spared from this outpouring of God's wrath. And here is where there's going to be a disagreement with everybody in the Reformed crowd. If you are a covenant theologian, by definition, you do not believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, a catching up of the church before the tribulation begins. You don't believe in that. If you're a dispensationalist, you do believe in that. Okay. Now, there are some, perhaps, some dispensationalists who would not believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, but a mid-tribulational rapture, a pre-wrath rapture, um, or even a post-trib rapture, but those are very, very rare. 99-plus percent of dispensationalists believe in a rapture of the church before this time of tribulation, and it is based on the Bible. It's not based on what we want. It's not based on what Darby said. It's not based on any of that. It's based on the Bible. And so I put in there as references John 14, 3. Jesus says, I'm going to come again, receive you to myself, and take you to my Father's house, that where I am you shall be also. Well, where does that fit in on the timeline? if not before the tribulation. When do we go to the Father's house, which is where he was going after his resurrection? When he ascended, he went to the Father's house, and his Father's house are many dwelling places. That's the way he is going, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the whole context there of John 14. And one of these days, he's going to come back, receive us to himself, very important wording, and take us to the Father's house. So what's going on on the earth during that time? Well, when you read the Bible and start putting pieces together, you see, okay, well, that would fit before the tribulation. But that's not the only passage. I think it's a very important one, but it's not the only one. You have, of course, 1 Thessalonians 4 that talks about us going up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You have uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 that tells us we were not destined for wrath, but we were destined to obtain salvation. And this time of tribulation on the earth, is God displaying his wrath? The day of the Lord, it's a fiery day of God's vengeance against sin, and we're not destined to receive wrath, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, but instead, we are destined to receive salvation. You have Jesus' promise to the church in Philadelphia that they will be spared from the wrath that is to come upon the whole world, the hour of testing or the hour of trial that comes on the whole world. Robert Thomas and his exegetical commentary on Revelation does a great job explaining how that is not being saved through the hour of trial, but truly being spared from that hour of trial that comes upon the entirety of the world. So uh, that is going to be a distinction between a dispensationalist and a covenant theologian, even though they may both see the tribulation as future. The dispensationalist says, I got all these passages here that are stacking up that are indicating to me there's some sort of evacuation here for the church because they were not saved to go through God's wrath, but instead they were saved to be spared from that. And this will be God's perfect vengeance poured out on the face of the earth, his judgment against sin. And also I say here at the, uh, the bottom of the box that during the tribulation, Israel will endure God's judgment and those who remain will be saved. So this is another critical point of distinction between the dispensational side of things and anybody who's on the covenant side. 
If you are on the reform side of things, if you're a covenant theologian at all, you are not going to see a distinct future role for national Israel. But instead, though there are some who would see uh, Israel playing uh, a part in God's program and Israel uh, being saved in the end, we'll talk about that in a moment, um, they're, they're just not going to say that Israel is specifically, some Israelites are specifically going to be saved through the tribulation and have a specific role from that point forward in God's program. So we'll, I'll clear that up here in just a moment. Maybe I shouldn't have even started going down that road. But, but basically with this point that I'm making is that one of the functions of this great tribulation is to purge Israel. And I reference Zechariah 13. And if you read Zechariah 13, that prophet describes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit how two-thirds of Israel is going to be purged, and one-third is going to remain. They're going to pass through the fire. They're going to be refined by God through this time of trial, and they will be saved. Right? It's going to be a pretty amazing time. But Israel will be judged. The world will be judged. And there will be a third of Israelites who remain, as well as some other believers from Gentile nations, and that they'll go into the next thing that we'll talk about here in just a moment. But uh, the Old Testament, I, I referenced Jeremiah 30, verse 7. The, the Old Testament talks about this time of tribulation as a time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob being Israel. It's a time of Israel's trouble. And uh, you can read about what's going on with the tribes of Israel in Revelation chapter 7 and how God is going to be saving some people out of those tribes in Israel in a national sense, is going to have a very important and distinct role that they're going to play during that time and even beyond that. So uh, the church is not going to go through the tribulation. That's a distinct dispensational view. So even though there are some Reformed people who would agree the tribulation is future, and that, that's a minority, um, they're, they're going to say the church is going, going to go through it. The dispensational critique of that is, well, this is not a time for the church, but instead it's a time of Jacob's trouble. It's not a time of the church's trouble, and it's not a time where uh, the church is going to be judged for sin, but the whole earth is going to be judged for sin, and the church who was destined to obtain salvation will be spared from that hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole earth, and God is going to judge these nations, he's going to judge Israel, and those whom he has chosen of the Israelites and some from the Gentile nations, they will be saved, and they will go on from there into the next aspect of God's program. All right? So, woo, how's that? That's some uh, heavy lifting to get us started in today's episode. I basically just have three sections, by the way, tribulation, millennium, and then the role of Satan today. And so uh, the last couple, there have been like four sections. So I can go a little bit heavier on each of these three since there are fewer Fewer sections. Is that how that works? All right. Well, let's talk about the millennium now. What is the covenant theology view of the millennium? What do Reformed people say about the millennium? Well, like the Great Tribulation that we just looked at, when it comes to the millennium, there's no one size fits all. Um, and now we have some new terms to introduce. Uh, if you've not heard these, you'll really want to slow down and, and think about these. So here we go. Here's my articulation. There are three main interpretations of the millennium within covenant theology. The first is historic premillennial. Okay, so let's just pause right there for a moment before I continue reading. 
There are three main terms that are used in reference to doctrines regarding the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Some people are premillennial, some people are amillennial, some people are postmillennial. Those prefixes, pre, ah, and post, millennial, those have reference to the timing of Jesus' return in relationship to the millennium. Premillennialists believe Jesus returns before the millennium, therefore they are premillennial. Jesus returns, then he reigns for a thousand years. They are premillennial. Postmillennialists believe that Jesus returns after the millennium. There will be a millennial reign of Christ, and then he returns. Amillennialists believe that Jesus does not return with reference to the millennium specifically, that the millennium is not a strict period of time, but rather a metaphor, and Jesus will just re- return imminently at his uh, a time of the Father's choosing, okay? So now, with that basic view in mind, let's go back, with that basic understanding in mind, let's go back to the definitions as I've articulated them. Within covenant theology, the first view to consider here is historic premillennial. Before the return of Christ, Israel will be saved and grafted into the church. Jesus will return and reign for a literal thousand-year period. The church will then experience the blessings for Israel promised in the Old Testament. (laughs) Wow, there's so much in those three sentences. It's only three sentences, but they're very heavy. All right, so the historic premillennialist believes that Jesus is going to return before his thousand-year reign, okay? And before he returns to establish his thousand-year reign, Israel will be saved, but they're going to be grafted into the church. Also, during that thousand-year reign, the church, which just had a big boost of numbers based on Israel being saved, the church experiences the blessings for Israel promised in the Old Testament rebuilding of the cities, the agricultural blessings with uh, how the, the cattle and the fruit of the vine and all of that will just be flourishing. All of that's going to happen for the church in the millennium. That's the historic premillennial view. The amillennial view says this, the thousand years are a metaphor for Christ's reign that began with his resurrection. Perhaps more accurately, I could have said ascension, with his ascension. But this reign is limited to the church rather than being a physical governance over the nations of the earth. So very, very important here that in amillennialism, Jesus' thousand-year reign is not something that takes place physically from Jerusalem where he is uh, keeping the nations in line and specifically uh, governing over Israel because he's ruling from Jerusalem. It's not that. Instead, it's a spiritual thing. It's a metaphor, remember? And so he is reigning in the church. As he builds his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he's spiritually reigning in the church, and his rule and reign is confined to that domain. That's the amillennial view. And it's not a literal thousand years. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It might go on for 2,000 more. It might go on for two minutes more. That's how the amillennialist views that. And then finally, the postmillennial view is that the nations will be conquered before, or for Jesus, rather, the nations will be conquered for Jesus before his return. 
As the world converts to Christianity, the thousand years begin, whether literal or not, and at the end of the millennium, Jesus will come to inherit his kingdom. All right. So with the post-millennial view, the thousand years may be a literal thousand, may not be. You'll get different views on that within that camp. But the general idea is that the world is going to be Christianized. Things will get better and better. The kingdom will grow and there will be victory and there will be conquering for Jesus. And so um, at that time when it gets to like 99% Christian, because I don't think any of them would say 100, but the vast majority of the world is Christian and godly. Then Jesus returns, and he's not coming to begin a kingdom. He's coming to inherit the kingdom that's already been established as he has worked through his people to conquer all things for his own glory. So those are the three views that you have in within covenant theology. Now, there may be some variations to that. There may be some spins on the millennial uh, definitions and views, but those are the three main ones. You got the historic pre-mill, where Jesus is coming back after all Israel gets saved and grafted into the church. We enter into a thousand-year period. There's no distinction between the church and Israel, but we're just enjoying the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies that were made to Israel. That's historic pre-mill. There's millennial, which is super simple. Look, Jesus has been reigning since the first century. We've been in this millennial kingdom, his kingdom. Since then, he's ruling and reigning through his church. And one day he's coming back to end it, end it all and hand the kingdom over to the Father. And then you have the post-millennial view, which says this thing's going to take a long time. It's likely that we're still in the early church. Jesus is working through his church to Christianize all the nations and to make the world very godly so that he will come back and inherit that kingdom, hand it over to the Father, and we'll go from there. Well, um, out of those three, dispensationalists are most like the historic premillennialists. Uh, dispensationalists are premillennialists, so there's that. Um, dispensationalism has, as a, as a view, a system big disagreements with all-mill and post-mill views. Pre-mill, historic pre-mill, is very close, but there are some critical distinctions. And so let me pull up now the distinctions as I've articulated it on my table. Here's the dispensational critique. After the Great Tribulation, Jesus will return with his church to establish a literal thousand-year reign on the face of the earth. As revealed through the Old Testament prophets, this will be the kingdom promised to David, resulting in blessings for the world and a specific function for Israel who will be restored in their land. And then I give a whole bunch of references. We got 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 19, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 37, Amos 9. And that's just scratching the surface. So what's the big difference here? Well, remember, going back to our views of the tribulation, the dispensational view is the only one that says the church is removed before this tribulation, and this, this tribulation is a time of Jacob's trouble. Yet through that, a third of all of Israel will be saved. However, they're not being saved in the church. They're not becoming part of the church. Church is gone. And also, that third of Israel is not going to be a church. It's not going to start the church. The church began with Jesus's death and resurrection and 
actually at Pentecost, so 40 days after the resurrection, that's when the church really began. And you have now, of course, these local churches with pastors and uh, deacons, and uh, we have the Great Commission, we have communion, we have baptism, we got all that stuff going on. That's all unique that Jesus started. Before that, there wasn't the church, there was Israel. Well, when the church is removed from the face of the earth and that one-third of Israel gets saved, they don't like do what we're doing right now. They don't become the church. So the church has a beginning and the church has like an end because there's a specific purpose. And, and I'm not talking about the people. The people don't have an end. The people who make up the church, and that's really what the church is, the saints, those who belong to Jesus Christ, we don't have an end. We live with him forever and ever. But the role of local churches, that does have an end time. There are all kinds of things that local churches do now that will not be happening in eternity and will not be happening during the tribulation. Uh, One of the interesting things is just evangelism. You've got... uh, the church right now with the Great Commission being told to go out and to tell people about Jesus and to make disciples of all the nations. Well, what's interesting, when you read about that this time of tribulation in Revelation, specifically Revelation 14, you don't have the church on the face of the earth, so you don't have believers going out and evangelizing. Where's, where's the evangelism in, in the book of Revelation after chapter 5? When the tribulation is being described, where's the evangelism? Well, you've got these two witnesses who are described. You have the 144,000 Jews. And what's interesting is in Revelation 14, you have an angel that flies overhead proclaiming the gospel. But what you don't have is the church. You've got two witnesses, 144,000 Jews, an angel flying overhead, but you don't have how beautiful are the feet that are sent out of the church to go preach the good news, Romans 10. You don't have that anymore. So there's a big difference about what's going on among the redeemed in the tribulation as opposed to right now. And so since we believe as dispensationalists that the church will be removed before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, we don't see Israel getting saved and being grafted into the church. And that's what the historic pre-mill view says. Let me pull that back up. So the historic pre-mill view doesn't see a distinction between Israel and the church the same way dispensationalists do. They see that the, that the church is going to continue on somehow, very similarly to what's happening now, and that Israel is going to be grafted into that church in the tribulation. That is not what I see when I read Scripture, and that's not the dispensational view. And so if I could go to my, again, my second paragraph here on the dispensational explanation. As revealed through the Old Testament prophets— This kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish is the kingdom promised to David, resulting in blessings for the world and a specific function for Israel who will be restored in their land. So the church, the saints from the present dispensation, we come back with Jesus at the second coming. And there's redeemed Israel, that third that was saved through the Great Tribulation. We, we come back with Jesus at the end of the Tribulation, and there they are. There are some believers from Gentile nations also. There's a sheep and goat judgment, and there's an entering into the thousand-year reign of Christ. And in that thousand-year reign of Christ, again, we're not setting up local churches and stuff like there are today. That's not what's going on. But instead, you have nations playing a very prominent role, and I think this is one of the strongest points that that dispensationalism has 
is we actually have a theology of nations. What's going to happen with all these nations? I mean, again, Isaiah 19, I mentioned Isaiah 19 in one of these previous episodes, where you've got Assyria and Egypt and Israel being the third party among them, and there's a highway that's going to be built that'll connect these nations and they will live in peace and harmony with one another. If you're taking a covenant theology perspective in, into your Bible reading and you read Isaiah 19, how do you make sense of that time? When's that time going to be? Well, for the dispensationalist, we see that time being in the millennium, when Israel is a distinct nation and has a distinct role, and Jesus is on the face of the earth, ruling and reigning. And there are other nations, Egypt and Assyria, they will exist. Other nations will exist. If you read the end of Zechariah 14, again, I think I talked about this maybe last episode. <clears throat> you read the end of Isaiah or uh, Zechariah 14, you have Egypt engaging with Israel in observing the Feast of Booths and the law of God being prominent on the face of the earth and Jesus enforcing that law with a rod of iron. All that's happening during the thousand year reign. And there will be nations, distinct nations that exist on the face of the earth under the rulership of Christ, who is the ultimate, uh, not only ultimate uh, human being who's ever existed because he is also truly God, but he's like the ultimate steward and the ultimate king. He's king of kings and lord of lords, and he will perfectly steward the earth during that time and rule over all of the nations. It's going to be an amazing time. And then as we look forward, even into the new earth, beyond the millennial reign of Christ, into the new earth, when everything is remade and we are back living on the earth that's remade, that the nations are still going to exist. You read those last two chapters of Revelation, and it talks about the kings of nations bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. And it's just this beautiful picture where nations are going to exist. But right now, before the tribulation, you have the church existing, being made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, including Jews, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ. Christ is building his church. And in the future, when Christ is ruling and reigning over his kingdom, nations are going to have a very prominent role as distinct nations again. And there will be perfect harmony. And it'll be a scene unlike anything the world has ever experienced. It's going to be total redemption of the earth. And it will be awesome. Woo! Okay. So, uh, is that enough uh, for the millennium? No, it's not. There's seven million things to talk about. Or you could say a thousand things to talk about. But I got to move on. I got to move on to the next thing because we could just talk about this all day. A third and final point of critique. Oh, you know what? I was going to do something else. I should do this real quick. Um, I made a little table of people who take the different end times views, the different uh, millennial views. This isn't going to be perfect, but it's going to be close enough. Here are some names of people who fit the dispensational premillennial, historic premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial views. I'm going to, whoops, I did not mean to do that. That's probably going to mess things up. I'm going to put that there. I'm going to move me over here. And let's look at uh, these first two real quick. Dispensational premillennial, we could start with John Darby, John Nelson Darby, but uh, first on the list here is J.C. Ryle. But there's a little bit of an asterisk. Probably many of you have heard of J.C. Ryle. I put him in the dispensational premillennial camp, and here's that what that asterisk means. 
This author named Wilhelmsen writes, It seems best to understand Ryle's hermeneutics, eschatology, and ecclesiology as being in essential agreement with modern dispensationalism, even though he cannot be strictly described as a dispensationalist. Okay, so uh, just keep that in mind. But J.C. Ryle's first on the list. Then you got C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible. We all have lots of opinions about that. Lewis Berry Schaefer started Dallas Theological Seminary. J. Vernon McGee, Charles Ryrie, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, Erwin Lutzer, David Jeremiah, Todd Friel, Steve Lawson, Greg Laurie. Surely you've heard of several of those names. Those guys fit in the dispensational premillennial camp. Now, historic premill, you have many of the early church fathers. Uh, there's actually a, a book called Forsaking Israel that walks through how premillennialism was the view of the early church. This amillennial and postmill stuff came quite a bit later, but that's a little bit beside the point. So you have many of the early church fathers being premill, historic premill. There were some people who would talk about Israel and a future for Israel, but you don't really get that until a little bit later on. Um, many early church fathers. Who else? Charles Spurgeon, John Gill, George Eldon Ladd, Douglas Moo. He's a Lutheran. Craig Blomberg. John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Tom Schreiner, Jim Hamilton, Randy Alcorn. Those are some historic pre-mill guys. Okay, let me move my little box back over here. And uh, list off some all-mill and post-mill guys. I know you've, you guys view it on YouTube. You can see this, but we have even more people who listen, and uh, it's helpful to read it off for them. So all-millennial camp, it all started with Augustine. Actually kind of started with Origen. He's the origin of many bad things. But Augustine really developed the amillennial view. Other names, John Calvin, Abraham Kuyper, Louis Burkoff, Anthony Hokema, J.I. Packer, O. Palmer Robertson, Alistair Begg, Michael Horton, Sam Storms, Vodibachum, Paul Washer. And then postmillennial guys, and I've got a little, uh, little note here on postmillennialism too, that not all forms of postmillennialism are the same. <laughs> so if you wanted an even deeper dive on these millennial issues, you could dive into this. Uh, I write, for example, Puritan postmillennialism is quite different from the Reconstructionist theonomic postmillennialism of the modern age. The Puritans envisioned a mass, mass conversion of the Jews, some even believing that they would return to their land, leading to the start of the millennium over the face of the earth before the return of Christ. Today's Reconstructionists rarely see the Jews playing a role in the millennium at all. <laughs> so many words, so many things. All right, so many Puritans were postmillennial, but who else? Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, R.J. Rush Dooney, Greg Bonson, R.C. Sproul, John Frame, Gary North, Ken Gentry, Doug Wilson, James White, Jeff Durbin. I think James White would say he's been all four of these at different points of his life. And you're probably looking at this thing and, wow, I like guys from every camp. And they all disagree. What's the point of me studying this? The point of you studying this is that it's God's word and you'll be blessed by doing it. I do have a little note on R.C. Sproul too. I put him in the post-millennial camp. Here's my note. Sproul's eschatology was always hard to nail down, but he was certainly either amillennial or post-millennial. He was clearly not a post-millennial theon theonomist like Bonson or Rush Dooney. Some people who are caught in between amillennialism and post-millennialism will call themselves optimistic amillennialists. 
Woo! Those are some tongue twisters. Those are some real, real tongue twisters. All right. Well, to finish up, I think this will be um, this will be shorter. This will be pretty simple. Because if you remember, in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the millennium, Jesus reigning for a thousand years, and his people reigning with him for a thousand years. It also says that during that thousand years, Satan is bound up and thrown into an abyss. So here's why we, we need to talk about one last thing here. If you believe the millennium is happening now, like many people do, what does that mean about Satan? What does that mean for Satan? What does that imply about his activity? Okay. This is where we go now in the conversation is Satan's status. So the covenant theology definition here for Satan's status is this. For the amillennialist and postmillennialist, Satan is currently bound and sealed in the bottomless pit. However, he is still very active in the world. He is only unable to prevent the church from growing, which, of course, implies that he was able to do so. He was able to keep the church from growing before this binding. Okay, so um, if during the millennium, like Scripture says, Satan is bound for a thousand years, if you're all millennial, you have to say he's bound right now. The problem with that is, look at the world, right? <laughs> the problem with that is uh, Satan is doing stuff. And you can even see in Scripture that he's doing stuff. So um, what the amillennialist does, and I think probably most post-millennialists too, what they do with this passage is they say, well, when it talks about him being bound and sealed in the abyss, what it's saying is that he is unable to stop Jesus Christ from building his church. He's unable to stop people from being converted to Christ. Therefore, there will be success in the building of the church. More and more people will continue to believe in Christ, be saved, become Christians, and the church will keep adding to her number. That's what they say. So sealed in the abyss equals unable to stop the church from growing. That's all that means. So he's actually really, really active in the world, but he's unable to do that one thing he wants to do, which is stop the church. That's their view of things. Well, there's a, a pretty obvious critique to that. Here's how I describe it. Revelation 20 describes Satan being prevented from doing anything whatsoever. Yet Satan is described as being active against the church in the New Testament including Revelation itself. Additionally, Satan has never been able to stop the work of God as he is. He has always had a remnant. God has always had a remnant. So what am I saying there? Well, the first thing I'm saying is that when you are bound and sealed, when you are thrown into a bottomless pit and locked away, you are unable to do anything. That's not, uh, you know, it's not code for like, hey, um, do anything you want except this one thing. <laughs> Being bound and sealed means you're bound and sealed and you are confined. You are unable to do anything. That's the picture we get in Revelation 20. That's my first critique. Second critique is this. Um, Satan is described as being very active against the church. So this kind of goes in line, uh, or not in line, but it goes hand in hand with what I just said. If being bound and sealed means totally bound and sealed, 
And Satan is active against the church. He, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. He's going to throw some believers in jail, and they're going to have persecution for 10 days and all that stuff that we see in the New Testament. If that's going on, then that means he's not bound and sealed, which means we're not in the millennium yet. Revelation 20 isn't happening yet, because bound and sealed means bound and sealed. Satan is very active, therefore we're not living during that time. Third thing, as I describe it there in my critique, is that Satan has never been able to stop the work of God. God has always had a remnant. So it's whenever the amillennialists will take them, for example, because they're always going to for sure take this view. When the amillennialist says, well, look, when Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he bound Satan so that Satan could not stop the growth of the church. When they say that, what are they implying? Well, they're implying that before that, he was free to stop the growth of the church. And remember, they believe Israel and the church are the same, that Israel was the church of the Old Testament. Was Satan able to stop the growth of Israel? No, he was not. He was not able to stop the growth of Israel. So how could it be that Jesus binds and seals Satan whenever uh, to, to make him stop doing this one thing whenever he was unable to ever do that one thing? And they would maybe come back with, well, it's not in the Old Testament. It was just Israel that was God's focus, that, that specific nation, even though that was the church of the Old Testament, it was based on ethnicity and it was just that one nation. And Satan was clearly blinding the surrounding nations. And so now he's not able to do that. And so Jesus's church is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's why the, that's how this dispensation of the church's history is different from the previous dispensation, is kind of how they would say that. To which I would say, well, what about Ruth, right? Um, what about the other Gentiles that we see in the Old Testament who do actually have saving faith? Also, what about before Israel? I mean, sometimes we can forget that. There was actually a lot of time before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Noah. Was he an Israelite? No, he was not. Has God always had a remnant on the face of the earth? Yes, he has. Was Satan ever able to stop him? No. Nope. All right, so those are some things to consider about Satan's status and about this whole debate between covenant theology and dispensationalism. I've now gone through my whole table. I've shared with you quotes from Reformed people. I've shared with you uh, a list that I made of where people fit in the different millennial views. And now all that's left is for you to give your feedback. And I say that, oh, with trepidation. Do I want your feedback? I've already seen some. I'm actually recording this, a peek behind the curtain here. I'm recording this after the first episode came out, but uh, before the second episode has come out. So I haven't seen your feedback from the second episode yet. But uh, the only thing left is to hear from you. And I think I'm going to record a fourth one in this critique of covenant theology. And in that, I will uh, respond to some of the feedback I've gotten. And I think what I'll also do, time permitting, depending on how much feedback I get, I'll also play some clips from some more modern Reformed Covenant theology guys uh, that I've been listening to lately on podcasts and respond to some of the stuff they've been saying to kind of interact with something else other than my own, my own words, okay? Very well. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for supporting this podcast. Every every uh, listen is a support. Every time you watch on YouTube, it's a support. 
make, make sure to hit the like button and subscribe and click the bell and all that stuff. That really helps our channel. If you do that, it'd be a huge blessing. Okay. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. And I'll see you next time as we continue to do theology.